you could submerse your leg or whatever body part the, the lizard's attached to in the water. And if it's attached to my leg, and let's just say there's a stream nearby, are you now picking me up? You're carrying me because the lizard is attached to the body I'm, of water. I'm going to run for help. <laughs> Now you are. <laughs> I will run for help. You look for a stick or a lighter. This is the Dear Bob and Sue podcast. Stories from our journey to all the U.S. national parks and other public lands. I'm Matt Smith. And I'm Karen Smith. We're the authors of the Dear Bob and Sue series of books. Dreaming of a winter getaway? You don't have to fly to a tropical location. You can simply head to southern Arizona and find not just great weather, but some of the most remarkable public lands in the country. Today we're traveling to Tucson and the surrounding area, exploring Saguaro National Park, plus two national monuments, a national historic site, a national forest, and a state park. We'll be talking about the iconic Saguaro cacti, fascinating archaeological ruins, a 19th century fort, and some of the best hiking trails we found throughout our travels. And if the weather in Tucson gets too warm and sunny for you, there's even a place where you're likely to find snow. All this and more coming up next. I'm ready. Okay. I can't. I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. <laughs> Why is it always so awkward to start off the first sentence? I have no idea. All right. This is the time of year when people seem to be looking for warm national park destinations. And winter is really the perfect time to visit Saguaro National Park, the Tucson area, and southern Arizona in general. It is. Either you're going to go full-on winter... And you're going to go to the mountains and deep snow and snowshoe and build ice caves. Or you're going to go to Tucson. <laughs> right. Those are, those are your choices. <laughs> everything in between is probably not conducive for outdoor activities. Yeah. And, you know, they both sound good. I think the winter parks sound really good in December when it's all exciting and fresh. And then by March, I'm ready to go to southern Arizona. Or January 1st. <laughs> yeah. So we did an episode earlier on northern Arizona. It was our northern Arizona road trip. That was episode number 61. So now we're covering the southern half of the state. Right. We need to give equal time to the southern part because lots of really great National Park Service sites there as well. What about the middle of the state? <laughs> we're going to do a middle episode? You know, Arizona is great no matter what part of the state you're it in. It is. Yes. Yeah. Saguaro National Park is located in Tucson. And of course, you can fly directly into Tucson. But if the prices and flight options are better, which I think they typically are, you can fly into Phoenix and then drive down to Tucson. Yeah, it's not a, it's not a bad drive. It's about 110 miles. And there's stuff you can see along the way. So we are going to uh, start in Phoenix and make the drive down to Tucson because we want to tell you about a really great stop, and that is Casa Grande Ruins National Monument. Yeah, that's about halfway between Phoenix and Tucson. Casa Grande is an interesting place. Uh, there is a little town of Casa Grande, which 
this national monument is close by, but it's actually in the little town of Coolidge. And, you know, there's like shopping centers. And then all of a sudden, you are in this pretty uh, spectacular little national monument. Yeah, they built houses up around it. They developed all around it. But fortunately, they saved these ruins and they saved them a really, really long time ago. Yeah, 1891. That's when they first started repairing some of the ruins. Uh, matter of fact, it was the first archaeological preserve in the United States. Uh, President Benjamin Harrison, not Benjamin Harris that we've mentioned in, in other episodes. This is a different this president. This is a different president, <laughs> President Benjamin Harrison <laughs> in 1892, proclaimed it Casa Grande Reservation, and that, that protected it and got it on its path to becoming a national monument. Right. And then it was redesignated a national monument in 1918 and listed on the National Register of Historic Places in 1966. So as you can imagine, by the name Casa Grande, this protects a very large house, so to speak. It's a big old adobe structure, which is actually quite remarkable. Matter of fact, it's so remarkable and big that pretty early on, they thought, we, we need to protect this. We need to put it under a roof, essentially. But it's so tall and big that that was quite a, an undertaking. Right. The original shelter roof was built back in 1903 of redwood timbers and corrugated iron. But by the mid-1920s, it had begun to deteriorate. So they built a new roof, and that was completed in 1932. But the house itself, the Casa Grande, is four stories tall. Um, and it's made of, um, do you know how to say that, Matt? Caliche? Yeah, that's it's called Caliche. Uh-huh. Which <laughs> is a natural concrete. It was built built by the Hohokam people. Uh, they're known for their irrigation canals that they built, and there's not a lot that they know about this particular Casa Grande, but uh, you can tell when you see it that these people knew what they were doing. This is a large structure, multi-story, multi-room structure that was clearly made by sophisticated people. Right. And it was built sometime between 1200 and 1450 AD. And it's unknown today what the purpose of this Casa Grande was for. Um, some believe it was a dwelling for important people who lived there, while others think it served as ceremonial or religious functions. It also has uh, some pit houses, ball courts. And so this National Park Service site protects all of that area. So when you visit Casa Grande, there are guided tours that are offered throughout the day multiple times. But even on a guided tour, you cannot go inside the great house. I read that there are bats and insects and birds and other animals who live inside Casa Grande. And most of these residents, or maybe we should say their droppings, are unhealthy for human contact. Yeah, it's a quick stop. You can go there for an hour, two hours and see the whole thing and move on your road trip. That's right. Before we close out on Casa Grande, I did want to mention, um, you know, a lot of these places in the Southwest, the CCC, the Civilian Conservation Court, came in and played an important role in different construction projects. In 1937, a carpenter crew of 24 men came to Casa Grande from Chiricahua National Monument, from that CCC camp. So they built barracks, a mess hall, washroom, storeroom, and a recreation hall 
all. But here's the thing. Not all of the CCC workers worked in construction. Some of them, Matt, were assigned as park tour guides. They put them on visitor duty. That's right. To give tours. They actually gave tours. And one more thing I wanted to mention. In 1939, the CCC workers built an entrance to the monument, like an entrance station like we see in parks today, because the park superintendent had been told to start charging a 25-cent admission fee to every person who came into the monument. So they built this entrance station where personnel could you know, collect the money from visitors. But apparently, this admission fee angered 38.9% of the people who attempted to enter the monument. Those people refused to pay the money, and they turned around and left. I like your single decimal point uh, <laughs> precision on that. I know. Isn't that so That's specific? Great. I just rounded to about 40%. <laughs> Yes. And then when the CCC left in February of 1940, there was an insufficient number of employees in the park to work the entrance station, as well as conduct the guided tours. So uh, in 1940, permission was granted to end the entrance fee, and the park has been free ever since. So they were charging a quarter. Yes. To put that into perspective, I looked it up. A dollar in 1939 was equivalent to about $22 today. So a quarter would have been roughly the same as $5.50 today. So no one wanted to give up their five bucks. Right. And they also have some really great artifacts, Indian artifacts on display in the visitor center. And I wanted to mention briefly this next place that you actually can't go and visit. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So we're, I think we're taking our podcast in that direction. We're going to start talking about places you can't go. That's right. Now, this one is Hohokam Pima National Monument. So, Matt, it's listed as a National Park Service site, you know, in the 400 plus National Service sites, but it's actually closed to the public. It was authorized by Congress in 1972 to protect an ancient Hohokam village known today as Snake Town. They excavated the site in the 1930s and again in the 1960s, and they found out that it was inhabited from about 300 BC to around 1200 AD, and it probably had up to 2,000 people living there. But after the last excavation, they recovered the site. Um, they, you know, re- they put dirt back they over put it. They put dirt they back filled over it. Back it. In, they filled in Snake Town. They filled it in. That's correct. And because the monument is located on the Gila River Indian Reservation and it's under tribal ownership, the Gila River Indian community decided not to open this area to the public. However, some of the very beautiful artifacts that they unearthed are on display at the Casa Grande Visitor Center. So you could see some of them when you visit Casa Grande. That's great. Thank you for that. (laughs) Are there any other places we can't visit? Apparently not in the National Park Service. That is the only one. And it's very close to, um, to Casa Grande, which is why I mention it. So they probably don't have a stamp? You know, that's a really good question. The um, NPS passport stamp program started back in 1986, but I don't know when this monument was closed to the public. So I guess there could be people out there that have this stamp. That would be cool. It really would. Yeah. 
Good to know. Yes. You can't go there, folks. But let's move on to the feature park of this episode, the park that you can go to. In fact, two different districts of the park, and that would be Sahuaro National Park. Sahuaro National Park. It is named after their signature cactus. They're actually the largest cactus in North America. Yeah, you know, saguaros grow on average between 40 and 60 feet tall. And of course, they are known by their signature, well, it says elbowed arms here, but I don't recall. They don't all have elbows. I don't think they actually have elbows. It's just sort of a curved arm. But what I love about them, you know, when you walk through saguaro and these groves, these stands of trees is... Some of them are actually facing downward, and some of them are in different directions. I think every single saguaro is unique, and they kind of have a personality, don't they? They're like snowflakes. Yeah, they're all (laughs) different, and they're a lot older than you think they would be, 100 to 150 years old. Yes, and a couple of interesting facts. They don't even start flowering until they're about 35 years old, and they don't grow any of these arms. The arms don't appear until they are between 50 and 70 years of age. So yes, it takes a very, very long time for them to mature into, you know, the saguaros that we see throughout the park. Yeah, I guess some of them can live up to 200 years. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. It is. That is a long time. However, there are some threats now facing the saguaros in in southern Arizona. Heat, drought, and an invasive grass called buffalo grass. Those things are driving wildfires that are killing the giant saguaros in Arizona. Well, you know, the weather patterns seem to be changing back a little bit. The last couple years have been better, so maybe they'll get a reprieve. Yes, and there are some groups that are now starting to plant saguaros by hand and not relying on them to replenish their populations. They're actually coming in and trying to plant swaths of saguaros. So so that might help the situation as well. Swaths? Swaths? Swaths of saguaros. All right. Well, <laughs> good luck with that. I hope that works. Yes. Okay. So this park, Saguaro National Park, has two districts. And this is important to point out because... Uh, If you didn't know this, you would just go to one of those two districts and and think you've seen it all, but they are uh, in different places. There's one east of Tucson and one west of Tucson, and we'll talk about those two areas separately. And something important to note, too, both of these districts are only open to vehicles from sunrise to sunset. Now, you can walk or bike into the park 24 hours a day, but you can't drive into the park, say, you know, at night to the middle see of the, the stars. Night. Yeah, I mean, you if you wanted to see the stars, you'd have to walk in. All right. So this area, this land was first declared a national monument in 1933 by Herbert Hoover, not Benjamin Harris. And then Congress elevated the status of the national monument to its current national park designation in 1994. So it's been around for a long time, but it hasn't been a national park for that long. Right. Now, the two districts we're going to talk about uh, protect 91,000 acres in total. There are about 200 miles of hiking trails throughout these two districts. So, Matt, do you want to talk about the East District first? That's the Rincon Mountain District. The Rincon Mountain District, it's the more established, at least as far as facilities. They have a nice uh, visitor center there. It's about 15 miles east of the center of Tucson, but it's essentially a suburb. 
This part of the park has about 67,000 acres and it's a little bit cooler, slightly wetter. It's more of a high desert environment than the uh, Tucson Mountain District that's west of Tucson because the Rincon Mountain District has a pretty wide range of elevation. And this really surprised me. The elevation ranges from 2670 to 8,666 feet. That's a pretty wide range of elevation. And it's one of the things that makes the park so beautiful because not only are you looking at these um, very iconic saguaros, but you're also looking at mountains right. Um, right behind them. So the views are really incredible. So they have a nice little uh, visitor center there, the Rincon Mountain Visitor Center. And from the visitor center, you can start on the eight-mile Cactus Forest Loop Drive. And that's a nice scenic drive through the area of the park that's right there by the visitor center. And as you're driving the scenic loop, just know that it was constructed by the CCC between 1936 and 1939. They built the existing roadbed, the stone retaining walls, and the masonry culverts. Uh, The original setting is still intact today, and the views in all directions are relatively unchanged since the 1930s. I'll remember that next time we visit. Now, one thing you want to do when you go to the visitor center is you absolutely want to ask them for the paper trail map because there are a lot of hikes in the Cactus Forest area and there are a lot of loops that connect with other loops. So what's great about this is you can hike you know, a quarter of a mile if you want to. On like a very flat trail, you can extend it to two miles or four miles, but you definitely want to get that paper map so you can see where all these loops connect. Uh, A couple of our favorite hikes were uh, Loma Verde, Bridal Wreath Falls, and the Mica View Trail to the Cactus Forest Trail. Yeah, the closer you are to the visitor center, the flatter the trails are. Mm-hmm. So if you want more of a nature walk, you're going to you know, focus on the trails that are closer to the visitor center. As you get further away from the visitor center to the east, then it goes up in elevation. We, we did another hike. We kind of drove outside the park past a residential area to a trailhead and, and hiked, and that had some elevation gain. Right. That was a seven-mile loop we did. It was a combination of Douglas Spring, Bridal Wreath Falls, Three Tank, and Garwood. A lot of uh, trail combinations available. Gosh, you, you can go further into the mountains and really get into a lot of elevation gain. As far as how much time to spend here, it kind of depends. You know, you can do the visitor center, um, drive this eight mile scenic loop and do a couple of hikes really in a half day. And so as you listen to what we're going to talk about, you could easily move on and add something else onto your day. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Right. Depends on how much hiking you want to do. So that's the Rincon Mountain District, which is, like we said, east of Tucson now. West of Tucson, about the same distance, about 15 miles uh, west of the town center, is the Tucson Mountain District. A little different kind of landscape there. They do have a visitor center, the Red Hills Visitor Center. This is a smaller district. It has about 24,000 acres, uh, and it's considered a low Sonoran ecosystem. It's a little bit hotter, a little bit drier, less vegetation than the Rincon Mountain area. And there is a great hike in this district, the Wasson Peak Trail. We hiked up via the Hugh Norris Trail, which made it about an eight-mile round trip, almost 2,000 feet elevation gain. 
the views from up there were incredible. That was a really great hike. It was, yeah. And after that, then uh, we went to Signal Hill to see the petroglyphs and, and there are picnic tables and we had lunch there. That's a cool thing. You don't want to miss the petroglyphs. Yeah, some great rock art there that date back to the 13th and 14th centuries. To view the petroglyphs, you walk on the very easy Signal Hill Trail about a quarter of a mile with only an elevation of about 26 feet. But, you know, this area of the park is also good for wildlife. When we were there, we heard a mountain lion, I don't know, what do you call it, a roar? It's actually called a scream, appropriately. <laughs> we were driving slowly with the windows down on the west side of, of the park, and we heard this mountain lion. So you, you might ask, well, what, how do you know that it was a mountain lion? If you heard this, <laughs> you would know. And I was really glad that we were in our car and not on the trail because it's a, it's a pretty frightening sound to hear. And there is other wildlife in the park. There are coyotes, and there's quail, there are desert tortoises. And one you really probably don't want to run into would be the Gila monster. I would like to see a Gila monster. <laughs> yeah. From very far away. <laughs> yeah, orange and black. And uh -huh. I don't think they're, uh, I don't think they move fast. They're about 18 to 24 inches long. They're one of only two venomous lizards in the world, the entire world. Yeah, still would like to see one. Uh, I guess what they do is maybe if they're provoked, uh, they bite you and then they just hold on. And it's not so much that they have venom, it's that like the bacteria in their mouths is so bad that it, this is the thing that infects you and, and can make you really sick. Well, so it's not like a snake bite where the venom is injected. I guess this venom flows into the wound yeah. as the lizard continues to gnaw and chew on its victim. Yeah. And even though it's rarely fatal to humans, I guess it's quite painful. <laughs> I, I guess so. And the other thing is, it's it's hard to get them off, mm -hmm. I guess, once this happens. So you don't want to provoke them. But uh, yeah, we looked up one time. How exactly would you get one off? I mean, so you have now a venomous lizard stuck to the back of your leg. What are you going to do? So a few methods uh, that they suggest. You can pry its mouth open with a stick. I like that because then you have, you have to go find a stick. Right, um, right. You could get uh, a lighter. Uh, or matches, you, uh, some kind of heat source, and you put it under their jaw. Of course, if it's on my leg, I'm I'm putting lighter anywhere I can find on the animal. I'm not going to look for its jaw. Or, I like this one, if there's a body of water present, uh, you could submerse your leg or whatever body part the, the lizard's attached to in the water, uh, and then it has to breathe and it'll let go. You could get a bucket of water, <laughs> put your leg in a bucket, although it's got to be a pretty big bucket. I, I don't know that these are practical tips because well, it's an 18 to 24 inch long lizard. Right. You can't it get it in the bucket. Well, no. And if it's attached to my leg, and let's just say there's a stream nearby, are you now picking me up? You're carrying me because the lizard is attached to the body I'm, of water. I'm going to run for help. <laughs> I know you are. <laughs> I will run for help. You look for a stick or a lighter. Here's my lighter. I'll be back. Of course, then the other method is the grab and yank. 
And that's the very last resort. They actually don't recommend that you do that because when you grab and yank, there's a pretty high likelihood that you're going to damage the victim in that process. (laughs) Well, it depends on who's the victim. If I'm the victim, I'm voting for grab and yank. Get this thing off me. (laughs) Not to worry, though, because... Oh, that's not going to happen to you. Well, it's unlikely you will even see a Gila monster. We were on the lookout. I I was actually kind of nervous about it, and so I kept watch where we put placed our feet on the trail. Um, we did not see any sign of one, but yeah, it would be cool to see one like sunning itself on a rock from really far away. Yeah. Well, maybe next time we go, we'll see a Gila monster. <laughs> maybe so. All right. Where to stay if you're going here? Obviously, there's the town of Tucson. There's plenty of places to stay there. Uh, if you want to camp, there are no drive-in campgrounds in either of these districts, although there are Six wilderness camping areas in the Rincon Mountains district if you want to backpack. Right. And take a bucket with you. <laughs> right. <laughs> Another thing we wanted to mention, too, when you are going to the Tucson Mountain District, another great stop very close by is the Arizona Sonora Desert Museum. Now, we haven't actually been there because when we visited, I don't know, we wanted to be outside, we wanted to be hiking, and we didn't realize how great this uh, museum is until now tons and tons of people have told us that we missed a really great spot so it's on our list for next time but yeah this is what 98 acres um, and it has a zoo an aquarium a, a botanical garden a natural history museum and a lot more and yeah so they have a zoo which has jaguars mountain lions javelinas and Karen, they have Gila monsters. So you could see one up close without worrying about getting a bucket. Behind Um, glass, yeah. Yeah, there you go. There's also a couple of miles of nature walks. People have said that you can easily spend two to three hours here. Yeah, and it's perfect because you could go to the, um, you could hike in the morning, you know, do the Wasson Peak Trail, and you could go see the petroglyphs, have lunch, and then in the afternoon, you could go to this museum. They do say to buy your tickets online in advance, because that's going to save you time at the entrance, um, especially during the busy season. So the general admission price is $30. They do have discounts for seniors, military kids, and local residents. This episode is sponsored in part by Rumpel, producing a full line of durable, premium, ultra-warm outdoor blankets and gear. Are you looking for gift ideas for someone special in your life? Someone who loves the national parks and could use a puffy blanket to stay cozy and warm on all their adventures? Well, yes, actually. I've been looking for gift ideas that you could get me, and I saw some beautiful new designs on the Rumpel website. I was talking to our listeners... And besides, we already own two Rumpel Blankets. Well, sure, but just like the ones we already have, these new designs are made with recycled polyester and insulation that packs down small in its own bag. And they pair durable 20D ripstop nylon with a DWR finish that's water, stain, and odor-resistant. That's great. So our listeners can shop their line of over 140 prints and designs, including their National Park Collection, at rumple.com forward slash Bob and Sue. And they can use the code Bob and Sue for 10% off their first order. That's R-U-M-P-L dot com slash Bob and Sue. Okay, so Karen, let's move to the east to another National Park Service site, Chiricahua National Monument. 
Yes. Now we are going to come back to Tucson because there are some other public lands that are not in the National Park Service that are worth visiting. But we do not want you to miss Chiricahua National Monument because this place is phenomenal. It is. Uh, there is what? There's talk that this might be the next national park? Yes. The politicians in Arizona have been trying to change the designation for a couple of years now. I'm not sure what the holdup is. Um, I think it's definitely worthy of national park status. Yeah, it is. It is uh, about 120 miles east of Tucson. Uh, it is uh, maybe, I don't know, 30 miles or so from the little town of Wilcox. Uh, so that's a place that if you're not just going to Chiricahua for a day trip or camping there, you, you might want to look at Wilcox as a place to stay. Yeah, it, you know, it's going to take you almost two hours to drive to Chiricahua from the Tucson area. And then, of course, the two hours back. And there is a lot to do in Chiricahua. So, you know, we would recommend maybe adding this to the end of your trip, spending the night in Wilcox to give you more time, because there's just a lot to do for it to be an out and back day trip. So the main uh, attraction of this particular national monument, well, there's two, really. One is the geography. So it's also called the Wonderland of Rocks. So there's a lot of interesting rock formations. Really, they look like the hoodoos that you would see in Utah, just a different color. But also the, the cultural significance of this. This is an area where the Apache Indians hid out and kind of their last stand when the U.S. Army was rounding them up. And so Geronimo hid in the rocks of the Chiricahua National Monument uh, back before it was a, a monument. Uh, and so there's that historical and cultural interest there. The incredible geography and this really fascinating history. You know, what more could you possibly want? <laughs> now, it became a national monument back in 1924. So it's been around for a long time. But it's funny, a lot of people still have never heard of this place. Yeah, it's tucked away. I mean, the, the southeastern area of Arizona really isn't on the way to and from a lot of places. So you kind of have to be going there on purpose. This National Monument is about 12,000 acres in size. And one of the interesting things about it is it is at the, I don't know, confluence might be the wrong word, but it is where four specific geographic ecosystems come together. The Chihuahuan Desert, the Mandarin Sky Islands, the Rocky Mountain Piedmont, and the Sonoran Desert there, which makes the geography interesting, also some of the wildlife and the elevation's about 5,000 to 7,000 feet. And a lot of its really cool geological features are um, from wind and water-carved ash deposits from volcanic eruptions 25 million years ago. You know, there are these spires and towers and a ton of balanced rocks. So it's really unique. We were actually blown away. We had no idea what to expect when we visited this park. And it was such a wonderful surprise to us. It was originally a home to the Chiricahuan Apache, and uh, they, like we said, had camps there. They used the area for hunting grounds. There are pictographs hidden in the park, mm -hmm. uh, and this is where a lot of them hid out when they were being rounded up by the U.S. Army. And more recently, the CCC came in for six years between 1934 and 1940, and they established Camp NM2A, that's what it was called. And in that span of time, they built an entire recreational site, including 17 miles of trails, 
eight miles of roadway, a campground, an administrative center, and housing and maintenance facilities. Um, So there are hardly any places in the park where you won't see a constructed feature from the CCC. There are currently 16 CCC buildings. And what's really cool is you can see um, how they were built from quarried stone, the rhyolite stone mat that was cut with hand tools and assembled following the current NPS design principles of the rustic architecture. So even in this remote Chiricahua, you can get a sense of the um, National Park Service rustic style. The CCC rocked the rhyolite and so did we, Karen. Let's talk about hiking in the park. So visitors can earn a Rock the Rhyolite pin if they hike a minimum of five miles in the park. And also, I think you're supposed to take a selfie of you and a rock formation. That's right, as proof that you hiked it. But before we get into the hiking, I just wanted to mention first that there is a scenic road through the park. It's eight miles long, and it's called Bonita Canyon Drive. And where it ends at the top, that's where the trailhead is for Echo Canyon. And it's the jumping off point to many amazing trails. Right. We took a uh, hiker shuttle from the campground. We were camping there up to Echo Canyon. And that shuttle, it doesn't run all year, does it? It does not. It runs during high season. And this is a free hiker shuttle, by the way. It runs from September through May, Thursdays, Fridays, Saturdays, and Sundays. Um, And it will take you up to the top. The thing is, it departs from Faraway Ranch at 9 a.m. And then the campground at 9.10. And it's on a first-come, first-served basis. So just know, if you show up at the park after that, this will not be available to you. But the reason that you might want to take the hiker shuttle instead of just driving up there and parking is because there is a great trail where you can start at the very top um, at the Echo Canyon Trailhead and you can hike down to the visitor center. And obviously then you won't have to hike back up to your car. At the top of the scenic drive, and so that's up in elevation, there's what's called a big loop. And then there's lots of little spur trails. So you can, that big loop goes through all of the interesting rock formations up there. Uh, So you could drive up there, do a lot of the big loop, and then go back to your car and drive down. Although, so what we did with with the hiker shuttle taking us to the top, we did the big loop. It's 9.5 miles one way, and it's a combination of the Echo Canyon Trail, the Upper Rhyolite Canyon, Heart of Rocks, Big Balanced Rock, Inspiration Point, Mushroom Rock, and Ed Riggs Trail. And then it ends up taking you back down to the visitor center. I thought that that was a great hike. And since you're going down in elevation, a lot of it. Now, when you're doing the big loop, you're going up and down. So you're, there's some elevation gain. But on your way back, it's it's all downhill. So it's a little bit easier. Yeah, that was a fantastic trail. You're just hiking through what they call the wonderland of rocks. Huge boulders, incredibly scenic with views. It's almost like you can see Tucson from there. Incredible views. So this was one of our favorite hikes in any of the national parks. Right. And from the visitor center, we could just walk back to our RV in the campground. This was our trip where we rented the um, RV mm-hmm. and we took it around to places in southern Arizona. And it was actually our first night camping in that cute little campground. And I remember when we met the campground host, 
one of the warnings that he gave us was he told us not to walk to the bathroom, walk to the restrooms at night because he said the skunks come out and it is likely in the dark that you could step on a skunk. And of course, um, the results of that would be uh, fairly disastrous. Well, we were fortunate that we had uh, a little RV that had a bathroom in it. Um, (laughs) Because I would not have gone out in the dark. (laughs) Yeah, I I could just see you tripping over a skunk. Right. That would not be good for anybody, you or the skunk or me. No, there isn't enough tomato juice in the world. Isn't that what you're supposed to do? Take a bath in tomato juice? (laughs) We would be getting a second RV. Yes. (laughs) One one for you, one for me. But what's interesting, at least we thought it was, is there are four species of skunks in the park. Okay, we, we didn't even know there were four species of skunks, but there are striped, western spotted, eastern spotted, and the ever popular hog nosed skunk. And those are the only four species of skunk found in North America, and they're all right there. I know. Yeah, and I think that's because all of these these four ecosystems all converge right there in in the monuments. So, yeah, so you got that going for you. Although there there's other wildlife, they have coatis, but they they also call them guatemundi. I don't know. They I have different names for them. They're a raccoon like animal. I think they look like a cross between a raccoon and a meerkat. And they've got these these tall, skinny tails that stick up and they say they're playful. Yes, you have a good chance of seeing them. Unfortunately, we didn't see any and we were we were keeping a lookout because that would have been fun to see. Again, an animal I didn't even know existed. Right. That lives right there in the park. Yeah. You thought they looked like monkeys. Well, the video I saw showed them swinging from tree branches. Remember that video in the visitor center? <laughs> no. I don't remember Yes, them. they were so up I'm in the trees. Swinging from branches. <laughs> <laughs> I think you added that part. There are no monkeys. There are no monkeys. Calendar. There are javelinas. There are black bears, actually, and mountain lions. Again, there are Gila monsters and desert tortoises. So, so there is some really incredible wildlife in the park. Okay, so a couple of other quick things about this park. Uh, it's great for stargazing because it's a fairly remote area, far away from metropolitan areas. So you have very little light pollution. So it's a great dark sky area. It also has... Some historic sites. So there's the Faraway Ranch Historic District that preserves a 19th century ranch that early settlers uh, founded while they were in the area. And also, this was where I think the army was held up when they were trying to round up the Chiricahua Apache. So, you know, again, history, geology, hiking, a lot to love about this park. All right. Okay, now the other thing that we found out we did not know ahead of time is that practically next door is another NPS site, and this is Fort Bowie National Historic Site. And you know what's cool about this is it has a really unique concept. It's a hike-in park. It's a hike-in park? Yes. I don't know what that is. <laughs> you can only get to it if you hike. Yes. So for starters, I'll just give a quick background. Fort Bowie was established in 1862 to give safe passage to settlers and supply units, and this led to decades of skirmishes between the U.S. military forces and the native Apache people. 
Apache leader Geronimo battled for years to reclaim their homelands, and um, Geronimo and his band surrendered in 1886, marking the end of the Apache Wars, and then the U.S. Army officially closed the fort in 1894. And now you can go and visit what's left of the fort. Where does the hiking park come in? So here's what the Park Service has done. They wanted to figure out how to get people to the visitor center and take them through a route where they could see a lot of the history along the way. So there is a three-mile round-trip easy hike that will take you from the trailhead on Apache Pass Road to the visitor center and the fort ruins. And along the way, there are interpretive signs to help explain and illustrate the history that happened here um, in the decades-long conflict between the U.S. and the Apache people in the late 1800s. However, if you are unable to hike to the visitor center, I guess there is an accessible road that you can drive. There's a back way and there is a sign um, so people who are not able to hike can get to the visitor center and the ruins. Oh, yeah. I remember now. Fort Bowie is the park that the Chiricahua Ranger told us we shouldn't drive to in our RV. Because... Apparently, when you drive Apache Pass Road to get to the trailhead, the last mile is unpaved and subject to flooding. She said that at that time, the road was in really rough shape and an RV would, would probably be struggling out there. So that's why we didn't visit it at the time, but it's definitely on our list. I watched a video about it and it looks really amazing. Okay, well, something's still in the bucket. All right, so that's Chiricahua National Monument. Let's go back to the Tucson area for a few more sites one of which is Sabino Canyon Recreation Area. And this is a national forest site. So it's in the Coronado National Forest, right at the foothills of the Santa Catalina Mountains. It's also essentially a suburb of Tucson, right? I mean, the, like civilization is right up to the entrance. You know, this is a gorgeous area of land and there are over 30 miles of hiking trails. And the reason we want to mention this is because if you look up hiking trails in the in the Tucson area, the most popular hiking trail is the Bear Canyon Trail to Seven Falls. Um, we hiked this and it is absolutely beautiful and you don't want to miss this when you're in Tucson. It was about a 8-mile out and back hike about a 1000 feet of elevation gain. Um, now, it can be shortened to 4.6 miles if you take the tram to the trailhead. We didn't do that. Right. We just walked on the road. Yeah, and then mm -hmm. the tram people made fun of us as, <laughs> as we were walking the road. And um, this is an incredible hike. There are a couple of stream crossings along the way, which are really easy to just hop over. And then this trail takes you up through forests of saguaros and cottonwood trees and teddy bear cactus and barrel cactus. Um, and then as you near the waterfalls, the trail turns into switchbacks before you finally see the falls around a bend in the canyon. And then you have this really incredible, stunning view of water cascading down the granite cliffs into clear pools. And, you know, you can just sit and eat your lunch or you can swim or wade in the water. But this is really not just a beautiful hike, but you get to see a lot of really great desert scenery, a lot of the native plants along the way. Yeah, so if you're in the Tucson area, this is close by and a really good day event, right? You just go there and you do a hike and you get out in the wilderness. It 
it can be crowded. I mean, it's a popular place. It is. And, you know, they have a visitor center. They do charge to get in, and there is a charge for the trams. So, you know, just note that you will be paying some money. You know, it changes, so I'm not sure what it is currently. It's close to private vehicles, so you can only drive as far as the parking area, and then you do need to either walk or take a, a tram or a shuttle. But do not miss Sabino Canyon Recreation Area. Okay, another place that is right adjacent to the town of Tucson is Catalina State Park, actually not that far from Sabino Canyon. And this is also at the base of the Santa Catalina Mountains. Now, this park has a lot of desert plants and wildlife, and it has more than 5,000 saguaros. I was really surprised about how many there were there. I was surprised too. And our campsite that we had reserved ahead of time, it backed up to just this incredible forest of saguaros and mountain views. And there was a trail back there. And two nights at sunset, we wandered back there, saw some beautiful sunsets. And it is actually a stunning landscape back there. So it's a great add-on. If you're going to see saguaros, then this is a fantastic park to see them in. And there are several activities there. I guess the, they do horseback riding there. You got hiking. Uh, there's also some biking trails. Now, when we were there, we hiked the Romero Canyon Trail to Romero Pools. And if you do that whole hike, it's about six miles out and back with an elevation of, of about 1,300 feet. We got to the pools, and then we noticed that the trail kept going. But it was a cold and windy day. Yes, and it looked like there was a storm coming in, um, and so we didn't want to be up there when the storm hit, so we kind of ran back down the trail, but this is also one of the top-rated hikes in the Tucson area. Absolutely beautiful, so if you have a chance to go to Catalina State Park, definitely do the Romero Pools hike. They also have camping, and the campsites were were really nice. Of course, we were in our RV and they were perfect for RVs because they all the campsites had paved pads. I think most, if not all of them, have the hookups. Yes. And this was key for us because this was the only campsite that we stayed in for our, our entire week that had showers, really nice hot showers. I'm telling you, whoever runs Catalina State Park is on it because the bathrooms were clean, you know, flush toilets, hot water. So this is a, a fairly luxurious place to camp, I would say, in our very limited experience of camping. Yeah, the the pad was huge. We had our, our little 20-foot uh, cruiseamerica.com RV looked teeny tiny as we backed it in. And then, of course, what I think is funny, and this I guess this happens when you are an RVer, is that as soon as you pull in, the welcome wagon comes around yes. and people all come and check out your rig. It's like, <laughs> yeah, oh, did you rent that from cruiseamerica.com? Yeah. So I, I wasn't able to like talk shop with the other RVers, but they came and checked us out. And we're super friendly. If that's what RVing is, then sign me up because everybody was just so nice and knowledgeable. And we sat out in our little camp chairs and they would come and talk to us. And so that was really fun. And fortunately, the next day when Matt decided to visit the dump station and I don't even know, what do you call it? Do the dump for the first time ever. Fortunately, I don't want to call it anything. I don't want to call it That's anything. I don't not, even want to think do about it. Do the dump it. is probably not the right expression, I but fortunately, none of these people were around to see because 
it was kind of a comedy of errors, I think. Well, we'd never done it before. So there was, I knew there, there was a learning curve and I thought, well, where is the dump station? Hopefully it's, you know, tucked off back in the corner. It was right at the very front of the campgrounds. Like it's everyone who comes in or goes out of the campgrounds is driving right by it. There were no trees around. It, was, it wasn't private at all, which, <laughs> you know, was the first thing. Second, there were a lot of, um, I had a lot of problems <laughs> with doing the dump. Uh, I had gloves, so I had, you know, so I was prepared with that. I think I had safety glasses. You did as have well. safety glasses. Um, uh-huh. Yeah, there was, I had trouble getting the tube out that you connect to the, um, like, little port that, that you connect to the tube that you put in the dump hole. Even talking about this <laughs> gives me anxieties. That, Were there written directions? There could have been. I did, <laughs> there probably there were, were. I didn't read them. I know the guy <laughs> who checked us in when we rented the RV, he went over the dump process pretty quick. I, I wasn't paying attention because I just wanted the keys yeah. to, to the RV. Mm-hmm. And I was sure that we were never going to do that because I think for 75 bucks, you can bring it back full. <laughs> yeah. And in hindsight, that's what we should have done. Yeah. But you know what? On the bright side, you got some new tennis shoes out of it. <laughs> well, I... Yeah, because I had to throw my tennis shoes away. (laughs) Yeah, and the good news, too, is all of these places that we're talking about in Tucson are basically on the outskirts. And so you have the metropolitan area at your fingertips. So seriously, we drove two blocks, bought Matt some new shoes. You could drive two blocks and get a margarita. You are inches away from civilization. So none of these parks are you out in the middle of nowhere. Uh, But Catalina State Park is a beautiful park. So if you've got time when you you are in Tucson, definitely check that one out. And one other place that's in the Tucson area is Mount Lemon. This is this is a completely different experience than the Sonoran Desert that surrounds Tucson. Mount Lemon is ninety one hundred feet tall, so you can drive from the Tucson area, which is about twenty four hundred feet in elevation up to the top of Mount Lemon and a very different ecosystem up there. Yes, and as you're driving it on your way up, and this is the Mount Lemon Highway, also known as Catalina Highway or Sky Island Scenic Byway, you are traveling through almost all of the different life zones that you would encounter if you were to actually drive from Mexico to Canada. So you're starting with the Saguaro-studded Sonoran Desert, then you go up through grassland, junipers, oak, pines, and then finally, you're in a mixed conifer forest with stands of aspen. So you are literally going from the desert up to up to an alpine forest and snow. <laughs> and all of that's only about an hour to an hour and a half drive, depending on the weather. It's about mm-hmm. 40 miles from the center of town. Yeah, and it's very close to, the turnoff is very close to Sabino Canyon and Catalina State Park. So all three of these are in the general vicinity of each other. So if you're in the Tucson area in the winter and go up there, it's going to be full-on winter-like mountain conditions. They have a ski resort up there, Ski Valley. It's not huge, but it's got about 20 trails. It's got a one long chairlift, so that's kind of a, a fun thing that you could 
You could hike in the desert one day and ski the next. Right. Now, we have just driven up there because the scenery is incredible, the views. So it's fun just to drive up and drive back down. There are a few other things you can do, like you can eat. There is a handful of restaurants up there, including the Mount Lemon Cookie Cabin, the Sawmill Run Restaurant, and the Iron Door. Or you could shop. One of my favorite things, there's a a general store there and a couple of gift shops. I'd like to stay at the cookie cabin. (laughs) I don't think you can stay there, Matt. I think you just buy cookies I can't rent a room at the cookie cabin? (laughs) Why don't you call them up and ask them? That would be fantastic to to spend a few days in the cookie cabin. That would be your dream come true, wouldn't it? It would be, yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's also up there, there's some hiking. You can fish. In, in the winter, again, you might want to check the, the conditions before you drive up because it could be snowy. I guess in the summertime, a lot of Tucson residents go up there because it's 20 to 30 degrees cooler. So they go up and hike and they escape the heat of the desert. But again, in the winter, you might encounter some uh, treacherous roadway. So check the, uh, check the road status before you go up there. But that's a very cool thing to do. Okay, so that's Mount Lemon. Let's talk about just briefly one other place that's a couple hour drive from Tucson, which is Organ Pipe Cactus National Monument. And people have told us that they've visited it, uh, they love it. We have never been there. It's a National Park Service site named after its Organ Pipe Cactus. I always keep thinking that it's in Oregon. (laughs) <laughs> but it's not organ pipe cactus. It's organ pipe cactus. Organ, right. And the reason it's called that is because, you know, unlike the saguaro, which has one single trunk and then it has arms branching out from that trunk, the organ pipe cactus is more bushy and it has multiple arms that grow up simultaneously. And they think that it looks like the pipes of a church organ. That's how it got its name. Yeah, so this um, this National Monument is about 130 miles west of Tucson, and so it's going to be a two to two and a half hour drive, it sits right on the border with Mexico. So that's going to be kind of a long day trip, but we wanted to mention it because a lot of people, when they're visiting the Tucson area, they do add this park on. And they do have some camping there, so uh, campers can spend the night so they don't have to do that drive uh, all in one day. Right. And it's been a national monument since 1937. Um, And then in 1976, it was declared a biosphere reserve by UNESCO. And um, and then in 1977, 95% of the park was declared a wilderness area, a lot of incredible scenery, hiking trails and that kind of thing. So um, you might want to add that to your list as well. Yeah. It's also a a dark sky area. Mm Mm-hmm. All right, Matt, when would you say is the best time to visit these places in southern Arizona? Fall, winter, and spring are all good times to visit. But just know that in the winter, it gets cold at night. So in January, the average high temperature is 68 degrees and the low is 38. In February, the average high is 71 degrees and the low is 40. And in March, the average high is a perfect 77 degrees during the day. Right. And that, of course, is in Tucson. You know, the temperature could be different when you are in the southeast in Chiricahua. So those those are based on Tucson average temperatures. And how much time to budget for your trip? Well, we titled this episode Five Perfect Days. So here is a suggestion. And of course, you know, it depends on what you want to do and how much you want to hike. Just a very brief outline. So day one, you could fly to Phoenix, 
Uh, get your rental car, drive down to Casa Grande Ruins National Monument, visit that, and then finish your drive to Tucson. Check into your hotel, drink some margaritas, and maybe sit by the pool. More than one margarita? <laughs> Plural. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you could do that. And then on day two, you could go to the Rincon Mountain District, uh, go to the Visitor Center, drive the Scenic Loop, uh, do some hiking, maybe even on that same day, drive up to Mount Lemon. Yes, that would be a good thing to do in the afternoon. On day three, you could visit the Tucson Mountain District, do a hike, visit the uh, Signal Hill Petroglyphs, and then, you know, maybe in the afternoon, visit the Sonora Desert Museum. On day four, go to Sabino Canyon, do the Seven Falls Trail. That wouldn't take all day, so you could still have time to go over to Catalina State Park and hike there. Yes, you could do both of those in one day if you're up for two really great hikes. And then we have on day five, the Chiricahua-Fort Bowie combo, spending the night in Wilcox, just because, again, it would be virtually impossible to drive back and forth and visit Chiricahua and visit Fort Bowie. Um, so we have you spending the night in Wilcox. And then from Wilcox, drive back to Phoenix on day six. That's about a three-hour drive. And then fly home. Right. Obviously, if you wanted to add in Oregon Pipe Cactus National Monument, that is in the opposite direction of Chiricahua, so it's to the west. Unfortunately, you, you wouldn't be able to do those two together on this um, at the same time, but you could add on a day, two days, three days, uh, lots to do in that area. And we really like the town of Tucson itself. It has a little over half a million people. It's home to the University of Arizona. And you'll find a lot of lodging choices for every budget there and a lot of good breweries and restaurants. Tucson has a lot to offer and it also has a lot of charm. I would like to spend the entire month of January there and rent a house in the Catalina foothills area. Yeah, I think I've heard you mention that about six or seven times. <laughs> we never pull the trigger on that, but we need to one of these years actually do it. All right, that wraps up this episode. Thanks for joining us today as we escaped for a bit to southern Arizona. Next week, Matt and I will be off-grid in a cabin in Montana, but we still have two episodes left in December, including one about really unique adventures offered throughout the national parks. And we will not be talking about our New Year's resolutions. Uh, <laughs> we'll just wait. I have a list all ready for you. For me? Yeah. <laughs> you, you have made my New Year's resolutions? Well, I just have a few suggestions. <laughs> mm-hmm.